It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico where she worked and then disappeared. Well, the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? They said they grabbed her from behind the counter and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael Moore's van. I didn't know Michael Moore had a white van. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't send the van. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? He laid down in two areas, which was a sign. It's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. If they would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van, that's where it would have went, right to the shredder. I've been in this from day one. There's nothing else I can say. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the story of a small town kidnapping where corruption got in the way of justice. The truth is finally coming out. This is Peebles for the People, and I'm Alex Peebles. Download and subscribe to Peebles for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Denise was known because of her comic ability and talent as an actor. But she was also known for being fiercely punctual. So when she didn't arrive to perform in the evening's theatre show and hadn't been in touch with anyone, her friends and colleagues began to worry. Patrol officers from the Montreal Urban Community Police Department turned up to the address given by her flatmate and made their way into the building. The door was unlocked and slightly ajar. They made their presence known and entered the apartment to assess the situation. What they found was chilling. This is Red Rum a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 11, Denise Morel. Yvonne Gertrude Denise Morel was born on the 3rd of December 1926 in Montreal, Quebec. She grew up in a working-class household with her brothers Roger, Gilbert, and Gaston, and her sisters Huguet and Pierrette. Yvonne grew up in the Harshalaga Maisonneuve neighbourhood in Montreal. It's situated on the eastern half of the island, and at the time of Yvonne's childhood, the neighbourhood was facing debt and unemployment, meaning that the family of eight regularly struggled for money. Just two months after Yvonne was born, there was a huge fire at the Laurier Palace movie theatre caused by a discarded cigarette. The disaster was an event that shaped Yvonne's life as it affected the artistic community heavily for many years to come. 78 people, most of them children, were killed in the fire and many people used this to forbid children from going to the cinema. They claimed that the cinema, quote, 
ruins the health of children, weakens their lungs, troubles their imagination, excites their nervous system, harms their education, overexcites their sinful ideas, and leads to immorality. Unquote. From an early age, Yvonne enjoyed dancing and singing with her siblings, and she had a real knack for comedy. But a law was passed after the fire, forbidding anyone under the age of 16 from being able to attend cinema screenings. So she turned her focus from film towards the stage. The next few years were focused on Yvonne's studies, and this led to her academic understanding of the theatre. And with her parents' say-so, she made the decision to change her name to Denise Morel. Throughout the 1930s, other forms of entertainment such as radio and TV began to initiate. And in 1931, Canada's first TV station began broadcasting in Montreal. The production was happening on Denise's doorstep and she was keen to be involved. Her father was incredibly supportive and told Denise that he would help her in any way he could. But TV was really new, as was film. So he encouraged her to think about taking the step from performing for family and friends to actually studying theatre. By the end of the war, the workers in Montreal and much of Canada had achieved huge improvements both in wages and working lifestyles. This meant that Denise's family could finally afford to send her to private acting lessons, which soon enabled her to enrol in acting school. The 1950s saw a shift in French Canada's theatre scene, with the first summer theatres opening, as well as Radio Canada introducing various new television shows. This meant that Denise earning a living through being an actor was much more likely. Denise impressed her acting teachers through the range she was able to deliver. She came across as an open and kind woman, and her acting style was no different. Her casting type often made way for characters with heart and care. Denise impressed fellow actors with her voice, speaking in a warm, grounded tone for much of her scripted work. One afternoon, she surprised everyone in class when she effortlessly transformed into a clown-like, high-pitched, silly character, unlike anything her classmates had seen from her. In 1958, Denise made her professional debut at Théâtre de Pierre's, which led to her becoming a regular on Montreal stages. Theatre in Canada experienced a significant boom between 1965 and 1975. It transformed the society and people began to see it as a real strength to their identity as a community. This led to a fierce loyalty and nostalgia associated with past and present well-known theatre actors. Throughout the first two decades of her career, Denise was taken on by author Michael Tremblay 
and director Andre Brassard. She was one of their favourites, and she worked her way up by collaborating with the renowned pair. Throughout her life in the spotlight, Denise kept her private life very private. She found the fame that came with being one of the first successful female actors in Montreal quite overwhelming. Even so, she enjoyed meeting new people and was continuously proud of the work she was creating, both in theatre and on screen. Denise lived in the Plateau Mont Royal Borough in Montreal. She chose the area because of it being Michael Tremblay, her friend, collaborator and employer's childhood neighbourhood. As well as it being known as an artist's haven, much like the Shoreditch area of East London. It was home to wonky pastel-coloured terraced buildings and a number of underground theatre spaces. The famous Park Avenue, situated in the heart of the borough, was full of independent bakeries and shops. Her film and theatre work continued over the next few years. Denise was soon cast in Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. She was proving to be an incredibly talented and popular actor, and in 1980, appeared in a play where the role had actually been written specifically for her. It was around this time Denise had decided that she probably needed to move apartments. She was living with a friend, but, at the age of 54, craved her own space. As well as this, the early signs of gentrification of the Plateau Mont Royal Borough were starting to become apparent, and as rents increased, she made the decision to look for a new place to live. On July the 17th, 1984, Denise decided to take a look at a listing of a ground-floor apartment on Sanguinette Street, just the next part of town over from where she was currently living. It wasn't a perfect area, but it would be a step away from the bustling streets of Plateau Mont-Royal and a little closer to the calming St. Lawrence River. Denise had a show to perform in that evening, so asked the landlord if they could meet in the afternoon. But the landlord told her that he wouldn't be able to make it before her evening call time. He said that he would leave the apartment unlocked and she could take a look herself. He told her that he would call her on the home telephone the following day to see if it was appropriate for her. She asked if it would be okay to leave it unlocked and he assured her It was empty of furniture and valuables, so it would be no problem. At 2.30pm, Denise made her way to the apartment, stopping at the bank on the way. She made a withdrawal of $200, before making the 15-minute walk to the apartment she was going to be viewing. At 6.30 that evening, Denise's co-star, Renée Gagnon, began to worry when she didn't turn up to their pre-arranged meeting. Assuming that she may have had a change of plans and decided to meet at the theatre, Renée headed towards the theatre. 
However, as 7pm came and went, and with no sign of Denise, he alerted the director and management. Denise was known for being punctual, and it was unlike her not to let anyone know. Denise's friend and actor, Louise, took on Denise's role temporarily for the evening's performance. However, once the show had finished and there was still no sign of Denise, or any kind of message from her, her friends and colleagues began to worry. Renee said, quote, When Denise said something, she always did it. Her reputation was spotless. When I arrived at the theatre and no one knew where she was, I was in any case convinced that something very serious had happened, unquote. The management alerted the police and called round all Montreal hospitals to see if she was there. The stage manager then contacted Denise's flatmate to see if she was there, but Denise hadn't told anyone where she was going, and the stage manager was informed that she hadn't been home since the previous morning. Soon after that phone call, the owner of the apartment that Denise had gone to view called Denise's apartment and her friend answered. He wanted to know if she was interested. As soon as Denise's flatmate realised that was the last place she must have been, she called the police, who made their way to the apartment to investigate. At around 4pm on the 18th of July, patrol officers from the Montreal Urban Community Police Department turned up to the address given by her flatmate. The door was unlocked and slightly ajar. They quickly made their way in to assess the situation and what they found was chilling. Denise's body was lying on the floor, covered in blood. She had been beaten so savagely that her nose, jaw and skull were shattered. Denise had also been raped and a sample of semen was recovered from her body. It was later revealed that the killer had heated up the iron bar on the gas stove before beating her and then strangling her to death with a rope. At the scene, there was a matchbox, a piece of rope, an iron bar and a blood-stained footprint. When Denise was found, Her trousers that were soaked with blood had been ripped off and the zip was broken. Her blouse, trousers and underwear were covered in blood and semen, so were kept as evidence, in hope of advances in DNA technology. The tragedy was too much for Denise's siblings to deal with. Her nephew, Elaine, agreed to accompany officers to the morgue to identify her body. Officers carried Denise's body, wrapped in a bright orange body bag, out of the flat, where a large number of reporters were waiting to hear who the victim was and what had happened. The pathologist found the cause of death to be severe trauma to the skull and brain by violent impacts to the head and face with a blunt object, as well as severe trauma to the neck. Denise suffered deep bruises and abrasions to the eyelids, lips and chin 
a lower tooth fracture, a dislocated left finger, and bruises on the back of both hands. She also suffered lacerations to the scalp and multiple fractures of the skull and nose. The press, the community of Plateau Mont Royal Borough, and most of Canada were urgently awaiting news of the killer. Even though there was solid DNA evidence, the first conviction based on DNA evidence wasn't achieved until 1987. Colin Pitchfork was convicted of the rape and murders of 15-year-olds Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth with the use of DNA from semen found on both of the girls' bodies. Colin Pitchfork is a well-known name amongst some crowds. Infamous for being the first criminal to be convicted of murder based on DNA evidence. Linda Mann was just 15 years old when she made the familiar journey to her friend's house. But when she didn't arrive, police were called and eventually found her body lying to the side of a footpath. Linda had been raped and strangled, and although a semen sample was collected from her body, the case eventually went cold. A few years later, in July of 1986, Dawn Ashworth, who was also 15, went missing whilst walking home. Her body was found in the woods near her house two days later. She had been raped, beaten and strangled. A semen sample was taken from her body. In the year leading up to Dawn's death, a new forensic technique had been developed. It allowed comparison and potential matches to be made from DNA samples. On the 19th of September 1987, Colin Pitchfork was arrested and his DNA was found to match the semen samples found on both victims. Colin admitted to the rape and murder of the two girls, for which he was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 2018, he was denied parole. Six days after her death, Denise's funeral was held at St. Clement's Roman Catholic Church in Montreal's East End where over 1,000 family, friends and fans gathered to mourn for her. In 1990, the city of Montreal honoured the much-loved actor's memory by naming a park after her. Even now, long green ivy covers the right wall of the park, with an idyllic set of trees that lead to a winding path. There's a play area that sits to the left, and yet again more trees. A light brown wooden picket fence surrounds the park and a few old-style French lampposts shine warmly on the park and surrounding paths. Just to the right of the entrance, there's a white and red sign that says on it, Denise Morel. Investigators penned three theories as to what might have happened to Denise on that fateful night. The first being that the suspect saw Denise withdraw the $200 from the bank and then followed her to the empty apartment where they robbed her before raping and murdering her. 
Another theory came from some solid eyewitness testimony when a delivery boy from a nearby restaurant saw a suspicious man whose clothes were stained with blood. He said that he saw the man sometime between 4.30pm and 5.30pm, which fit the timeline of the murder. It's thought that the murderer may have stumbled upon the empty apartment when looking for a place to do drugs. The final theory was that Denise may have known her attacker. A day before the murder, a potential lodger went to view the apartment, but left before the end of the visit because she said it didn't feel safe. Denise was known to be quite fearful and not to venture out unnecessarily, so it's likely that she would have been accompanied by someone she knew or trusted. Even with all of these theories, the case gained no new leads and eventually went cold, with thousands of mourners unable to gain closure or feel safe in the city. Over the next 23 years, Denise's murder remained unsolved, but still the focus of many conversations. And in April 2007, a French-language TV network produced a documentary on the case with the aim of raising the profile and finding new leads. The Montreal Police Department set up a tip line for any new leads and began working again on the 23-year-old cold case. In August 2007, a huge breakthrough came when the cold case detectives were able to match the DNA samples from the semen found on Denise's body to a rape case that occurred in 2006. The individual convicted for the 2006 rape case was Gaëtan Bissonnette, a 49-year-old white man from Montreal. Gaëtan's criminal record, which started in 1976, consisted of 19 convictions for offences ranging from rape to theft. His lawyer said, quote, Whether you're innocent or guilty, when it's something that happened 23 years ago, you're going to be shocked and surprised. Unquote. Tragically, Gaetan admitted that Denise had only been targeted as a matter of chance. He was squatting in the unlocked apartment after looking for somewhere to do drugs when Denise had come to view it as a place to rent. He admitted that she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and that it was a pure coincidence. At the time of the murder, Montreal had seen a steep social and economic decline After the 1976 Olympics hosted in Montreal, the city was subject to a $1.6 billion debt and the level of poverty rose. Mass homelessness emerged around this time because there were government cutbacks to social housing programmes. And it was common for many homeless people to squat in abandoned or unlocked houses. Single adult men were and still are most likely to be homeless in Canada. Just two months after Denise's murder, Gaetan broke into another woman's apartment where he raped her at knife point for seven hours. He was convicted and served just three years for the rape. 
the solid DNA evidence was used to convict Gaetan. However, the charge was changed from originally being premeditated murder to second-degree murder in exchange for a plea deal. Gaetan pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in order to avoid the trial. In Montreal, second-degree murder carries a mandatory life sentence with the possibility of parole. The Crown Court agreed with Gaetan's lawyer that he would be sentenced to a life sentence with no eligibility of parole for at least 14 years. However, after just 20 minutes of consideration, Justice James Brunton overturned the joint sentencing suggestion. He said that it was insufficient and, quote, not harsh enough given the seriousness of the crime, unquote. He explained that although Gayton pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of unpremeditated murder, the crime committed was one more akin to premeditated murder because Denise was killed in a context of particularly brutal sexual assault. The judge also spoke of Gaetan's long judicial past and recognised that he'd made no attempt to be treated for his problem of violence. Justice James Brunton later sentenced Gaetan to a life sentence with a minimum of 20 years before the possibility of parole. Gaetan didn't appeal and will be eligible for parole in 2027, at the age of 70. There was some discussion over his release from prison for the previous rape offence. Many people thought that his sentence of three years was too short and that a longer sentence could have prevented further crimes. Even now, the maximum punishment for rape is 15 years, or 20 if the rape includes other aggravating factors. Back in 1984, the average sentence for rape was much shorter. Denise's brother, Gaston, fought for over 20 years to gain justice for his sister's death. He, along with four of her nieces and nephews, were at the courthouse to see the verdict take place. They expressed that they believed justice had been served and they were happy with the result. Gaston passed away in 2013, survived by his four children, seven grandchildren, great-grandson and many nieces, nephews and cousins. For a lot of people, Denise represented their childhood. She was a constant figure of energy and delight. Our childhood memories define who we are, and Denise helped shape that for many people. Denise's legacy lives on through her many family members, friends, and fans of the show. The brutality of the rape and murder of Denise could be linked in part by looking into the relationship between poverty and sexual violence as a form of masculine identity crisis. The learnt behaviours of masculine ideals are often passed down from the parents or grandparents and place an emphasis on providing money or shelter. This is often impossible when living in poverty and so in these circumstances, men turn their aggression against women 
their, quote, inferior status in an otherwise patriarchal society means that they have little to no control and therefore gain satisfaction from exercising control or power over women. The rape that Gaetan committed was one of both anger and power. These titles are given to this attack and are a set of several types that clinical psychologists have defined and analysed. With, quote, power assertive rapes, the rapist uses the attack as a way to feed their issues of control, dominance, strength, intimidation and authority. The rapist, and in this case Gaetan, probably used verbal threats, as well as the metal bar, to make Denise comply. With this kind of rape, the rapist tends to have fantasies about sexual conquests and rape, sometimes believing that the victim will enjoy it. This is, of course, untrue, and so the rapist's fantasy is never satisfied. And, as Gaetan did, they go on to rape again, continuously searching for a victim until they find the right one. With, quote, anger rape, the rapist aims to humiliate and degrade the victim. This kind of rape is usually much more physical and forceful than would be necessary if the intent were to solely achieve penetration. The kinds of physical force that are listed here and that Gaetan might have used include grabbing, striking, knocking the victim to the ground, beating or tearing their clothes. There is a fairly limited amount of data available on sexually violent men for a number of reasons, but we do know that risk factors of a man committing rape include attitudes and beliefs, as well as behaviour arising from situations and social conditions that provide opportunities and support for abuse, and alcohol and drug consumption. Gaetan was high on drugs when he committed the murder, and he was homeless. We don't know that any amount of support could have prevented him from killing Denise, but we do know that that support wasn't available, and those exact conditions increase risk factors. We also know that even once Gaetan was tried and convicted for attacks, burglaries, and rapes in the years before and after Denise's murder, his sentencing did not reflect his potential as a violent criminal. And as the judge said when sentencing him for Denise's murder, that he recognised that Gaetan made no attempt to be treated for his problem of violence. In 2027, Gaetan will be able to apply for parole, which could lead to a deadly outcome, given his previous behaviours. In Rochester, New York, in the 1980s, Arthur Shawcross had served 14 years as part of a plea deal and good behaviour for killing a young boy and girl. After his release, he went on to kill at least 12 more people and earned his name as the Genesee River Killer. And this, unfortunately, reflects much of the challenge faced in the justice system today. There's no right answer about how to prevent this, but there is little investment 
and priority in prevention methods and dismantling toxic thought patterns that may lead to these behaviours and ultimately, murder. If Gaetan is granted parole without root treatment, observation and continued support, there is a high probability he will offend again. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.